It is a great honor to join with you today. Did I turn the mic on okay? I got it? All right. It's, uh, I've known your pastor for, I don't know, five or six years. I think we've known of one another longer than that, but we've, we've been more well acquainted for the last five or six years. And uh, it was uh, a privilege to get to, to be with their whole family uh, some last evening. Of course, we're thrilled to be here with Will and Kim and Jackson and Ellie this weekend and with you guys. I'm not a big fan of Mother's Day and Father's Day messages, so this isn't one, even though it is Father's Day. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is, they're, uh, probably the biggest one, is that I just, I just know that there are too many people in every church because I've, I've had them sit across my desk and, and weep and grieve with me because they, 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 I wanted to be married and weren't, or they wanted to have children and couldn't. And I grieve with them, and I, I don't like isolating them on any particular day. The other thing is, is that if I start talking to the dads exclusively, those of you who aren't, you know, might, you know, use that as an excuse to take a good nap. And uh, so I don't like to zero in. I, I want to have the opportunity to share good news with everyone. But I, but I, I will say that I don't deserve... The, the family that God has graced me with, I don't deserve to have a, a beautiful wife who is a spiritual giant and the strongest woman I know. I don't deserve to have the parents that I have. My mom is the sweetest person on the planet, and my dad at 85 can still uh, crush me in golf, and I'm not terrible. Um, he is uh, the de facto associate pastor of his church and chairman of boards and you know, he's just, uh, he's an incredible guy. I have three children who are, that I'm, they thrill me, and it's, and, and always have. I mean, I'm so grateful that Will is here. Now, I mean, you will probably know this, but he's not always been exactly the man that you encounter uh, here uh, in serving. But seriously, Will and Hannah and Noel are the great joy of my life. In this past year, I... I had the, the hard privilege of, of standing with Kat's family as her father passed away in January. I preached his funeral. And his nine children, are uh, they, uh, um, they were his delight and he theirs. And that was, that was a hard mercy of God to stand, in that, to stand in that place and serve in that way. We even have incredible... Um, you know, Kim is is the most incredible daughter-in-law I can imagine. I even like my son-in-law, Alex. He's a good guy. And don't even get me started on my grandkids, um, which or we won't get done. And I have one more on the way, but it's not from Will and Kim. Our uh, older daughter, Hannah, and her husband, Alex, are expecting in August. We swim in a sea of a culture that celebrates personal autonomy. We, we tend to believe that to be free means that we have to be free to, cho- to be able to choose. And there's, there's some truth to that. No one wants to be controlled by another person for their purposes. But sometimes we get this sort of sideways. As students, we complain uh, about long hours in school. We might complain about uh, being uh, chained to our desks at work. 
but there is such a thing as as being controlled by another per- person. There's such a thing as human trafficking. There's such a thing as totalitarian governments and and rogue bosses who who cause us grief. But we still we get this idea of freedom confused. We are not free to drive on the wrong side of the road or to not listen to teachers' instructions or to ignore co- company policies without consequences. We are free, in a sense, to mindlessly scroll social media, to binge watch TV, and to eat too much, but we're not free to experience the, the dullness and the deadness that those activities can bring onto us. But even as believers, we can develop an aversion to obedience, to being able to follow what God calls us to do that we, just seeps into us from the culture around us. But the gospel message that we have believed and accepted and internalized, if we have a relationship with God, aims us into a direction that teaches us obedience and affects our, our thoughts and our attitudes, our words, and our actions. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. And I would like for us to read this Together, And I'd, I'd like to an, invite you to stand with me as I read our text for this morning. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Let's stand together as I read our text. The Apostle Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, we call upon you to draw us to yourself. We as sinful people and our natural state would never be drawn to you, a holy God. But through your mercy and redemption, you have rescued us. You have adopted us. You have reconciled us to yourself. And so we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may see you and we may encounter you and that you would that you would generate fresh faith within us as we stare at you through your word in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to get at this question from this passage of Scripture. How does the gospel invade every part of your life? I want you to see, first of all, our need to set our hope fully on the grace. This passage conveniently uh, organizes itself. There are three commands. 
And we'll just be emphasizing each of those three commands in this text. So the first one, set your hope fully on the grace. Let's look at verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been studying through and preaching through the book of 1 Peter for the last several weeks at my church in Chesterfield County. And so I'm, I am recently thoroughly reminded of what Peter has addressed up to this point. And I can tell you right now that in verses 3 through 12 is a careful explanation of the gospel. He talks about those who are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and have been brought into an inheritance that that can't be spoiled. And even though they are uh, suffering under difficulty, Peter wrote to believers who were under persecution. They were, they were delighted and filled with joy because they were receiving the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. And he describes the wonder of this salvation as something so great that the prophets of the Old Testament... Uh, looked diligently trying to understand and see more and that even angels even angels the the text literally says that there was like they were standing on tiptoes being able to peer into something they couldn't completely experience the salvation that was so wonderful and then the point of me laying that out before you is that that therefore matters more than you think it does because every command that you have ever seen in scripture follows something that God has already done. Everything God asks us to do, everything God commands us to do, is a response to what God has already done. Another way to say that, that or is that imperatives follow indicatives. They follow the facts of what God are, has already done for us. If that were not true, if a person tries to obey the commands of Scripture when they are not redeemed, those commands are simply being addressed to a helpless sinner. And those commands will either, either crush us and our efforts to do them on our own, or they will, they will inflate our ego because we think we're doing pretty good at it. The, to, they will either crush us or drive us to a sort of legalism that will make a person an incredibly in, unpleasant person to be around. But this is honestly how unbelievers see the Bible. There's a tremendous misunderstanding that they just see commands lying there with no help or resources to carry them out. And it is a dramatic misunderstanding of what the whole Bible is about. So again, the main command in the text is to set your hope fully on the grace to be delivered to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're to do this fully or firmly and completely it's to be a deliberate act. When we hope in this way, it means that we're trusting God for the future. Because he speaks about the grace that's going to be revealed. We've already, and if you, are, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you've already experienced and encountered the glorious grace of God. But there's coming a time when you will see Jesus face to face and sin will no longer be a possibility at all. You will naturally and completely glorify God in, in every thought and in every word and in every action of your being. And that, that hope 
when there are no more grief and no more pain and no more tears, we're to set our hope firmly, clearly, decisively on that. These are the resources that God has given us to face difficulty in this life. Because if we set our hope on any circumstance in this life, we are inherently unstable. Because everything around us is and does change. Another thing that's clear there is that hoping Christians, people, believers who live in this way, can't live carelessly for self-indulgence and pleasure. That's why those phrases, to prepare your minds for action, that's an interesting phrase. It literally says, to gird up the loins of your mind. That's a weird phrase. But what that means is, in the dress of that time, if a, a man or a woman, I suppose, wearing a long robe, if they were going to, they were going to run, if they were going to move, go into action... They had to hike that up in some way. They had to gird it up so that they would be free to do that. The Apostle Peter says that we're to do that with our minds. And he says, furthermore, that we're to be sober-minded. That does not just mean that we don't get drunk, but it means to be realistic. It means to be clear. And so we're to, we're to set our hope on the one thing that can never be taken away from us. And we're to set it there fully. A couple of weeks ago, Memorial Day weekend, actually, most of our extended family from my side were in northern Kentucky for my nephew's wedding. Uh, Will and Kim and the kids were there. Kat was not able to be with us because of work, but most of our family were there. And after the wedding, my youngest nephew in that family, it was his 20th birthday, and he wanted us to go to one of these Japanese steakhouses for dinner. And I've only done that a couple of times, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And there was enough of us that we were all uh, gathered around. It was just us. There was enough of us at the table. And, and if, you've, if you've had that experience before, the chef is, is a bit of an entertainer. And he did all sorts of stuff with his, with his tools. And he flipped an egg onto his head, into his hat, and then used that egg later. That thought that was a little weird. And he was throwing food at us for us to catch in our mouths. But, but I, I thought later, as I was thinking about this text, and as, uh, as he began to grill steak and, and chicken and scallops and shrimp there on the grill, I mean, I could, I could see what he was doing. I, I could smell it. I, I, was, I was experiencing it. How odd would it have been if I'd had a Snickers bar in my pocket to say, you know what, I'm, I'm so hungry. I see food right there in front of me, but I, I just, I got to eat right now. I'm going to eat this Snickers bar. I mean, that would have been an insult to the chef, for one. But I could see that there was something so much better right there in front of me. My hope for food in that moment was not on anything I might have in my pockets, but it was on what I could see, but was not yet able to fully experience. We're to set our hope fully, decisively, completely on something we can't yet fully experience. But it is certain to those who know God. But we have a tendency to focus on what's right now. We are not to set our hope a little bit on our job and a little bit on our marriage, a little bit on our kids, a little on our bank account or our influence, our position, and mostly on the grace to be revealed. We're to set our hope 
fully on the grace that is to be revealed. This is the only way that we can face difficulty and grieve losses. This does not mean that we check out of this life. No, we solve problems. We work to make the world a better place. We try to bless the communities around us. But our hope is not in how those things turned out. And we're to prepare our minds for action so that we are alert to this. We have reasonable practices and routines in our lives so there's enough margin that we're not so mentally cluttered that we can't respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and the needs around us to be able to respond to what God's leading us to do. And we're sober-minded. We don't foolishly waste time. That in moderation probably are. But in great doses, they dull us to God and they dull us to the needs of the world around us. They're like an anesthetic that deadens deadens our heart to God's glory. And that drowsiness makes us dangerous drivers of our lives. It's those who are grounded in this gospel and setting their hope who are able to do the most good in this life. So the way that we do this, the way that this practically happens, is that we have to know and internalize deeply and regularly meditate and worship on what's behind that word, therefore. To think deeply about what it means to have been born again into a living hope. To have an imperishable inheritance. To have a salvation so glorious that angels long, they crave to be able to imagine what it must be like to experience that. It, it is why, and, and I think the most practical sense of this is to, is to decisively choose to have a moment in your day when you're going to stare at the Word of God and the, and the Savior behind that Word, who, who is the Word, in a, in a daily time when you're looking at Him. Your pastors do not, and and other spiritual leaders don't encourage you to have a quiet time every day because it makes God like you better or makes your day go better. No, it's because that we, we need to know what that hope is so that we can set our desires and our hope on it. We need to be marinated in that. And the way I personally do this is after to, the way I seek to obey the command or the part of the command to, to think soberly is in the, when I'm in most in danger of being able to sense what God is leading me to do each morning, then I take a look after I've, after I've wrestled with God in prayer and reflection, I take a look at my schedule and think, what is it, what is it that God would have me do today based on the vision I've just seen on who God is and what he's called me to do and to be? How does the gospel invade every part of our lives First of all, that will take place as we set our hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus returns. Secondly, we're to be holy in all our conduct. Look at verses 14 through 16. They say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter writes to believers, he calls them elect exiles. 
in the very first part of the book, they were under difficulty. They were under persecution, but they were people who had heard and believed and heeded the gospel. He, he calls them children of obedience. It's not the, the way the ESV translates it, obedient children, is, is not the, the exact best way to think about it because the, it's, a, it's a word picture in the Greek that describes as if obedience is our parent. Children of obedience. That's what God calls us to be. And interestingly, the word behind the word obedience comes from the idea of hearing. We are, we are brought into obedience by, by hearing the gospel and believing it. But this life is, is not passive. He speaks there of negatively, first of all, that we're to not be conformed to the passions of our, of our former ignorance. Uh, wrong desires still lurk within us and still tempt us, and so we have to deliberately choose, refu- choose to refuse those and choose the good and the right. And so there stands the command, be holy in all your conduct. I mean, it, re- it really seems like an impossible standard. That is the command. But how can you and I be holy like God is holy? Well, fortunately, it doesn't flow. It's, it's not, the way to do that is not to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all the commands of Scripture so that you make sure that you don't forget what you're supposed to do and not forget what you're not supposed to do. And you keep all of that in your head so that you're meticulously following that throughout your day. No, holiness flows out of God's character. And, and the key is our love for God, and His holiness flows through us. It, it's really another way of saying that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. I think generally in our culture and in most of our minds, when we think about the word holy, we think about a, a form of intense purity. And, and it includes that. But at root, it means that, that a person who is holy is set apart for God's purposes. If you think about it this way, God is never anything less than who he is. He is always fully God. And so God is always, God is always fully set apart to be who he is. And when we, when we are connected to him, we are called and empowered by his presence in us to live that out. But not because we legalistically hang on to all the commands in our head. I have always used some sort of task manager. Um, I, I use something called Todoist right now, but, but right now, as of last night, when I checked this last, I have 3,008 tasks in my task manager. 700 or so of them are personal things related to our family, and 2,200 or so are related to ministry objectives. Now, you know and I know that I can't possibly focus on 3,000 tasks. And in fact, I've had a few experiences over the years where I've been using one of these things and I got so far behind, I just declared bankruptcy and set them all aside and started over on something else. Maybe you've never uh, had that sort of experience. 
maybe you have maybe with email you've you just archived them all and started over there were so many there and and you just declared bankruptcy and started over my point in telling you all of that is that the way that we are holy is not through this trying to keep up with 3,000 commands or 3,000 tasks and remembering all of that in the Word of God. Rather, it's to remember to, that we never forget that we've been chosen by God and, and that we're always to be set apart for His purposes. And we, we are to, negatively, we're not to conform to the passions of our former ignorance. But I think that when, when we see that word passions in Scripture, that we have a tendency to only think about sexual sin. And it clearly relates to that, but in one of the classic passages in Scripture that have a sin list, um, probably the most well-known one in Galatians 5, 19-21, Paul does mention sexual immorality first, but he also mentions other things that you might not think of in terms of these passions that, that do still war within us, things like enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. These are the kinds of things that before a person comes to Christ, they may not even see those as it's just normal behavior. It's just what happens. But those also are the passions inside of us that are that are be surrendered to God. And when we've gone through this season in our lives in the last year and a half of, of conflict everywhere, as Nathan was praying earlier, I mean, that, the, the sort of enmity, enmity, the sort of jealousy, the sort of strife, fits of anger that, that we've seen even amongst those who claim to be believers. That is not what God has set us apart for. But rather, we're to be set apart for His purposes. And we do this again. It's, it says throughout here, and as it says throughout the Bible, God says, I'm calling you to be holy because I am holy, and you're connected to me. And I love the verse in the beginning of Hebrews that says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. And so we don't grow in our holiness by meticulously trying to remember the commands. But we grow in our holiness by staring at the glory of Jesus. And not just the things that He said and did, but by observing more closely just the way that He interacted with people. Because that's what holiness in a human being looks like. The way he spoke and and did and related to people. And as we come to him looking closely, he will reveal that to us. How does the gospel invade every part of your life? We set our hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus returns. We are holy as we seek to be holy as God is holy in all of our conduct every part of our lives, and finally, we conduct ourselves with fear. Look at the last part, 17 through 21. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
When Peter says, if you call on him, he's not trying to insert doubt about whether or not you belong to God, but is simply pointing to the reality that the very nature of being connected to God means you are a person who calls on him. You're a person who prays. You're a person who, re- who relates to him. What he is saying does not apply to every single human being. And so he says that we're to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. And he gives a motivation for that fear that we call on a father who judges each person impartially according to their deeds. I find there's confusion amongst believers about what what judgment will be like for believers. I I have people ask me this um, certainly more than once. What kind of judgment is a believer going to face? And there are two extremes to that. Some, Some interpret the grace of God to mean that it somehow removes all accountability to God and that that we will no longer give an account for our lives. At the other extreme are those who fully acknowledge the accountability that we have before God, but they believe that it then depends on how they behave, on how they carry out the commands. And if that's works righteousness, if that were true, it would contradict much other scripture, and there would be no way that anyone could have any assurance that they actually belong to God. The reality is that experiencing the fear of God and the grace of God are in in no way contradictory. Rather, our our obedience does not earn God's favor. Rather, our obedience reveals that we've been shown God's favor. It's the evidence that we're actually connected to God. And none of us do that perfectly. But the Bible makes it clear that those who are connected to God will persevere to the end. And there will be works that follow them. But in that light, the way commentators often interpret this idea of fear, and I've done this myself, is to say, well, that doesn't mean that we're in an abject terror of God. That, that we're that kind of fearful, but the, the danger of that, the danger of saying it, it just means reverence, is that reverence can be a pretty weak concept. We just think of reverence as being quiet when you come into the sanctuary. And so, but, but what Peter deliberately brings to do here is both the awesomeness of God and the tenderness of God. Because as you notice, as he, as he leaves this this image that we are to fear a God whom we will stand before and give an account of our lives. And the Bible says that shoddy ministry, shoddy efforts at ministry or ministry that's done in our own strength, ministry that's done to, to impress other people, that, that our reward in heaven will, will be different because of that. Our, our works will be judged but not on whether or not we'll be in heaven and hell. The the only way a person knows God, the only way a person will experience eternity is through the mercy and the grace of God accomplished on the cross, which you will notice that Peter has gone on to explain. He's already laid out the gospel clearly in verses 3 through 12, but he walks through it again 
as he mixes the tenderness and love of God. That we're, to, we're to experience a fear that's mixed with grace. Where he talks about we're ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Not with something perishable, but with the precious blood of Christ, who was a lamb without blemish or spot or, or blameless. And then he speaks about the reality that this wasn't God's plan B, but he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But now he's been made known. He's been made manifest in these last times. That's speaking of the life of Jesus. And that was all for the sake of of those who who are, are believers in God, because God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. I've had a friendly debate with a friend of mine in our church who is a somewhat retired uh, pastor. He likes to emphasize the verse in 1 John where, he, where John says, perfect love casts out fear. And so that, that maybe, the, maybe this fear of God is something that's not supposed to be. And I'm, and, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty furiously arguing in the other direction. That, um, that those two things go together. We are to, the, the kind of fear that John's talking about is a fear of not knowing that we belong to God. The Bible speaks that we can have assurance, but that does not remove our, our righteous fear of a holy God for whom we will stand before. And that's part of the motivation that's provided for us so that, that because we, we need the resources of the Holy Spirit at work within us. To enable us to to reject the bad and to choose the good. It's kind of funny. I I told this story in our church. And one of our elders, another guy, his family, when he went home, just just assumed it was him and and said to him, Why have you been arguing with Gene about the fear of God? We think he's right about what he said. But it, it it wasn't him. Perhaps we don't grow in our love for Jesus and in our awe of Him because we don't invest the time necessary to observe Him with the eyes of our heart pressing into texts like this so that God opens our eyes to see what is valuable. Listen, in our own strength, in our own humanness, we are blind to glory. Without the Holy Spirit illuminating our eyes, we're like a fly who cannot tell the difference between a grilled steak and something the dog left in the backyard. We need God's mercy to open our eyes to what really is valuable and what really matters. So as you know, Peter speaking here about the precious blood of Christ, it reminds me that you know, I grew up from the time that I was a little kid singing songs about the blood of Christ. But I've sang them so many times that I I think, I I know that I've sung them a lot of times when it is just words. It it didn't mean a great deal to me. I feel like I should stand back up to tell you this part. But you know, I just imagine the Apostle Peter as an eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus could not one time utter the phrase that we were ransomed, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ without recalling the images that he had seen. And every time he thought of that, I can't imagine that it didn't 
Stir his love for Jesus again. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not remotely limited to stir that same kind of love inside of you and me from the fact that Peter saw it with his physical eyes and we see it with the eyes of our heart. The way the gospel invades our whole lives is that we learn to glory in what is glorious, to wonder at the precious blood of Jesus, to be able to sing with delight songs like this. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin and let a crimson stain he washed it white as snow. So there's a sense in which we will we will respond to God's word as we've heard it this morning for the rest of our lives. But it's important for us to react in the moment in some way. To react in obedience now to what the Holy Spirit has said to us this morning. So we're going to have a time of commitment. Nathan and Will are going to be standing at the front. You can come and pray with them. You can pray where you are. I don't know how the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning. It's almost certain that there are some in the room who have never submitted themselves to the Lord Jesus in the first place that never heard the gospel in, in such a way. It's been being preached here, I'm certain of that. But you've not really listened. And so you've not seen your sin for what it is. You've not seen the holiness of God for what He is and who He is. And so you've never been moved to cry out, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I plead with you that it has never happened, that you would respond to the direction of the Holy Spirit drawing you to Himself right now. You would not be drawn to a holy God unless God were doing that. So let's stand and sing together. You respond as God leads you to respond. Let's just sing the second verse. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone can change the leprous spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin and let a crimson stain He washed in white as snow. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to 
wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. Jesus waited all, all to Him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. And when before the throne, I stand in Him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus made it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow.